Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save some money here. My job's not just to entertain, but to put days like this in context, because they're not easy. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. So you're probably asking yourself, when is it safe to start bottom fishing? Maybe you started already. Well, that is the question after another hideous day. Dow plunging 346 points. S&P down 1.34%. And the darn nasty NASDAQ. Stop, stop, stop. Nosedive 2.11%. The answer? Well, there are a lot of different ways to spot a bottom. And while a bounce might be in sight, it sure makes sense after all this relentless selling. An actual bottom that may commit, uh, where you can commit a lot of capital? No. Too many stages away to feel on solid ground. So let's go outside the world of dollars and cents and talk about something that we may all understand from psychology class. Yes, let's talk about the five stages of stock market grief. We've got denial, we've got anger, we've got bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. Right now, even after a 6% decline, we still got a ton of denial. And that's just the first stage. People don't want to believe the sell-off is real. The market's been so good for so long, and many newer investors have never seen this kind of pummeling. So the downdraft does seem pretty surreal. And hey, denial's easy. We've got the pandemic on the ropes thanks to the vaccines, right? So that's positive. And there's the prospect of a big stimulus bill, more checks coming our way, positive, with some of that money flowing to the stock market like it did last time. Denial always sounds reasonable, though. And I was going over this with Helene Meisler, some fabulous stuff on Twitter that she does. I've known her for 30 years. It, it's too early. It, it, we we want to convince ourselves. That's what we're doing. We're convincing ourselves that any decline is merely an interlude. It's a dip that needs to be bought. But when the economy reopens, that changes everything. We already have some nascent commodity and wage inflation in the system. Once you throw in a huge stimulus package and suddenly lots of investors are worried about an inflation scare. Like we saw in late 2015, the last time the economy was coming out of the doldrums. See, at that point, Fed Chief Janet Yellen raised interest rates and the market, well, the market took it on the chin, even though we all knew it was going to happen. Well, this time should be different. I mean, today our more dovish Fed Chief Jay Powell took a different tag. He acknowledged there could be some uptick in inflation. He said, don't worry about it. He practically told us to relax. So what happens? Would it have been better if he'd said we had to raise rates? Probably because the bond market reacted viciously with long-term interest rates spiking. 
And that's what took the whole stock market down. And believe me, just go look at his talk. You'll see what he says and then watch the averages. It's cause and effect. In short, stocks are getting hammered because the bond market vigilantes, as we call them, are angry. We've got millions of newer investors, though, who don't even understand. And I, and I don't mean to sound condescending at all, but they don't understand the connection between bonds and stocks. And I've got to tell you, I didn't understand it either. Going back to the five stages of grief, these people are in denial about how bonds could impact their stock portfolios. And I get that. See, I remember when I was a kid, I got to Goldman Sachs in the early 1980s. There's a fellow, David Doris, he's regular on CBC, and he explained to me that I needed to check how the bond market was doing before I said a word about stocks to any clients. I didn't want to hear that. And I was adamant. I said, listen, you know, let me tell you something. I didn't chief him, but I said, let me tell you something. If a company's doing well, its stock's going to go up. Doris then chiefed me. He sat me down and he walked me through how the bond market represents the sum of all fears about inflation, supply and growth. OK, oversimplification. But all you need to know is that the professionals are taking their cue from the bond market, not the much more stock market. So you can't afford to be in denial about this linkage. You're just going to get hurt. Otherwise, you'll never be able to understand what's really killing the stocks of the PayPal's or the Home Depot's or the NVIDIA's or the Teldocs. And it's not their business. It's the bond market. Sure, if J-PAL turns out to be right, if there's no tsunami of inflation, well, then we got a different story. I mean, then we, we probably should be starting buying today. But it, it could be months before we even know it, if that's the case. We still got to go through these stages. You just do before the market can bottom. And we're early on in the process, sadly, for many stocks in this market. Some are not involved with this, but many are. Uh, denial's everywhere. The, the, this was a day that started off with Ron Barron, fabulous money manager, coming on Squawk Box and announcing he sold some Tesla. I mean, a, a stock he loves, a stock that he discovered, a stock that he's, he is Tesla. But, but he had to do it in order to right-size his position. That's a ter- technical term, right-size. As a former portfolio manager, I can tell you Barron's doing the exact right thing. He had to trim his position or risk becoming the Tesla fund, which is what happens when you own too much of one stock, simply because it's been such an incredible outperformer, it tends to dwarf all your other stocks. However, the moment Barron announced that he'd sold part of his position, there was a wave of denial from Tesla shareholders who've watched the stock sickening slide. They didn't want to believe it mattered even that Barron sold. I get that. When I pointed out that he had sold only to stay diversified, people were furious that I even pointed it out on Twitter. Their attitude, why bother mentioning it unless you, Kramer, want the stock lower? I mean, I don't know. It makes no sense to me. I mean, why deny the obvious? Too many of the newer investors out there, the portfolio management stuff, well, they don't get it. It doesn't register. As they see it, their biggest Tesla champion was letting stock go. Denial quickly bled into anger. Stage two, anger at Barron for seemingly abandoning the cause, anger at me for pointing it out. Anger is better than denial, but it's still only the second stage of Tesla grief. Where's the bargaining? Where's the depression? Where's the acceptance? I mean, the stock has fallen from 900 to 621. Look, during the last big inflation scare from 2015 to 2016, uh, the, the total debacle and my M.O. for the moment, my analog, so to speak. We got all five stages of grief before we bought them. It was ugly, plum ugly. And we only accepted what had happened after becoming incredibly depressed from the endless downside surprises created by Janet Yellen's raid. I remember being out in San Francisco, which I absolutely loved. And I was like, oh, man, I didn't want to come to work. And I've been wanting to come to work for 67 years, give or take. We tried to bargain with the animal spirits of the market all throughout that period, desperately holding on, praying the selling would stop. Please stop selling. Stop the deal. Stop the IPOs. Stop everything. Didn't work. When we finally reached the grand give up, the crescendo of selling that washes out the weekends, many high quality stocks were down. Actually, almost all were down 30 to 40 percent from their highs. 30 to 40 percent. Some great ones have been cut in half. No one wanted them uh-uh, because we had accepted that the stock market is an evil, horrible place. 
Now, is there a way out of this vicious cycle downward? Again, this time is different because the Fed really doesn't want to tighten. Ideally, Jay Powell will be proven right. The economy will grow, won't overheat, causing excessive inflation. And that's the optimal scenario. If Powell's right, then today could very well mark a bottom. But we can't tell yet. I think we don't stop falling until we get more anger, more bargaining, and more depression than we've had. How do you measure these emotions? Well, I have, the, I have ways to do it. I use the proprietary oscillator that I've mentioned a lot of times from the S&P. I mean, that measures wh- where we are quantifying the level of selling pressure or the level of these. Uh, when, we were, when we reach minus five on the oscillator, that tells you we're pretty depressed. When we reach minus seven or eight, that tells you we've accepted it. This evening, we're only at minus 1.5. I don't know, kind of here. Which brings me to the hunt for another way out, what I call the crescendo, the whoosh. See, there is a shortcut through the five stages, one that takes you from denial straight to acceptance. But if it comes at a real cost, people, you need a gigantic move down. And it's got to occur in one or maybe two days. I'm not talking about a one or two percent decline like today. I mean, maybe like a full blown four, five, six, seven percent whoosh where there's a collective sense that the market's toast. No denying it, nothing to be angry about, no one to bargain with, depression ongoing, and acceptance that I am never, ever going to own another stock again. All that happened in the early February of 2016, only to be followed by what? You know what followed it? A brand new leg up as the bull market started all over again. And then it went on for years, and you made a ton of money if you stuck with it, rather than accepting that it's the worst, most horrible thing that has ever happened to you. So how do you handle the five stages of grief from here? We're going to get bounces, bounces that make people feel like their bargaining has succeeded, but it hasn't. As I told people today in my ActionAlertsPlus.com call, if you lighten up into one of these things, right, when a little spikes up, you're going to be ready for the moment of capitulation, the crescendo, the acceptance that marks the trough. And most people are not light enough right now. They have too much merchandise, bottom line. If you want to be able to bottom fish at lower levels, make sure you've got a little cash to be able to do it with, which means on the obvious rallies that we got, including this morning, well, you know what? You take a little off the table because the real rally can't begin until we work through these five stages of grief and get down to where you never even want to hear a word from me again. Once that happens, though, well, I mean, you probably do want to hear a word from me, but, but not in anger. Once that happens, though, you don't want to miss it. Hey, you know what? Let's go to Robert in California. Robert. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. From the West Coast. Booyah. Dabbed hey, up. I bought Slack Technologies last summer at 29 okay. and three quarters, and it ran up to 40 plus after Salesforce announced the merger. Should I sell Slack and buy Salesforce? All right. Well, this I is very important. Cash this is very important. Salesforce and I, th- I think Salesforce is great. The stock, the company right now. Things are going down, and Salesforce is one of them, and people are starting to question whether the deal is a good one. I think the deal's a good one, but it doesn't matter what I think. Right now, I just think that you want capital. We said today on my call that it's certainly reasonable that Salesforce goes even lower, but that you don't want to abandon ship down here, not after it's already gone down. It can go down more, but how do you know you'll catch the bottom? I said, what do you do? We're going to get a little rally. We're getting little rallies like we had this morning. And you got to get that cash position going so you'll be able to handle this. The real rally doesn't begin, though, until we get right here. When you say, why did I ever think that I would be a Murray man? Why did I ever think that I could make money in the stock market? That's exactly Oh, man, money tonight. Tech has been slammed this week, but uh, up <laughs> 
After earnings, could Splunk break the tech funk? Uh, I'm going to talk to the CEO. Then IPO SPACs, lockup expirations. Oh, my! I'm taking a closer look at the oversupply in this market and sharing how it may impact your, your uh, portfolio. And remember, oversupply is a hidden disease. Uh, the solar winds breach was one of the most high-profile cyber attacks of 2020. So could the company that discovered the hack be the new cybersecurity darling? I'm going to talk with FireEye CEO. So stay with the stock market, raise a little cash, and stay with Crick. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollar sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney. Just go to Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now we're waiting for the cloud stocks to come down to levels where we can start buying them again without a lot of risk. But some of these names have been hit a lot harder than others, and I'm not sure it's right. Take Splunk, the cloud-based software analytics play. Here's a company that reported a genuinely ugly quarter in December, sent the stock plummeting, and in the past couple weeks it had another leg down. The thing is, Splunk's in the middle of a transition. It's moving toward a software-as-a-service business model, and we know from past experience it could be a bumpy ride. There's a short-term hit when you go from selling software licenses to collecting subscriptions. But now, last night, Splunk reported again, and this time the results were much, much better. I mean, a big top and bottom line beat. Cloud annual uh, recurring revenue, get this, up 83% year-over-year. Initially, the stock opened up 5%. I think that was right. But there was some hair on this uh, one, one management with it. 
Let's put it this way. They had to be a little bit cautious because we know the economy is pretty crazy because of COVID. But you know what? I got to tell you, the stock got pulled down really with the rest of the market. And it closed off 2.6%. This was not Splunk's doing. At this point, Splunk's trading at the lowest levels in 10 months. Maybe it's a buying opportunity, assuming they can keep delivering good numbers. Let's take a closer look with Doug Murray. He's the president and CEO of Splunk to learn more about the quarter and its company's prospects. Mr. Murray, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you, Jim. Very happy to be back. You know, Doug, it's funny. I was thinking about what to say to you. And if it had been awful, I would have said, don't take it personally. Because, Doug, this quarter, I remember in the previous quarter, you said, listen, you got to believe in me. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And you know what? They didn't. And not only did you do that, but you far exceeded that. You obviously have the products people want, including for a company that our viewers know well, Shopify. Tell them what you do for that, because that is a classic case of what you need Splunk for. Uh, yes, it's a great, great company, uh, obviously growing by leaps and bounds. It's everybody went virtual, uh, Shopify, that is. Um, they are a cloud native organization. Uh, and to do the continuous updates that they need to do to please their retailers and their customers, they've got to have an eye on a massive amount of data that their developers are constantly pushing and analyzing to make sure that the shopping experience is, is effective, that the code is high quality. Um, That's hundreds of terabytes of data per day. They need someone that can tap that data, analyze it, extract metrics, extract traces, extract insights information so that they have uh, uh, the overall confidence in in their code. And Splunk is there as the solution in an area that the analysts are calling observability to ensure that the experience that all of us have through Shopify is as great as it has been and continues to get even better. Well, because that empowers so many little companies, you'd think without Splunk and I'm not taking anything from Shopify, but you need both because you want the little companies to look like big companies and you want them to be able to observe so they can be able to shift. One company, that, another company that we have known as a great tech company that has Splunk involved is Domino's. And that, too, needs the observability. They need you need to be able to tell them so that they can speed up because it is about throughput. It's about getting the pizza to you quickly and hot. Yes. And and let me actually pivot to, I think, a really, really interesting story, given all the hardships that the UK has gone through. Uh, Tesco has been a longtime customer of ours. They are world's third largest retailer. 7,000 stores. stores, So it's pretty darn big. Largely physical brick and mortar. Like everybody else had to pivot like, like, like no tomorrow to be able to serve their customers as that country went up and down, up and down in lockdowns. Um, and Splunk is right there for them as well, uh, helping them with core, core cybersecurity footprint, knowing how vulnerable organizations are, especially in COVID and the cyber front, um, as well as leaning in to help them get their uh, offerings up on the web quickly so that the UK citizens could actually get what they needed in a time when everybody was sheltering in place. So what did happen at the end of last quarter? You said that you were going to get the business. It was just harder to close because of COVID or there were other companies involved and you got the business because it was rather amazing. I mean, everything that you have a lot of times people just say, well, wait a second. Come on. He's making excuses. But there really were issues. And then you won all the business. You know, I've been, C- I've been at Splunk for 31 quarters, CEO for 27 of those quarters. Um, and this was the first time that I was surprised in my entire tenure at Splunk. And when I went back and looked at it, it really is a tale of two different businesses for Splunk. As you opened the show, um, we are growing our cloud business like no tomorrow. Um, we've taken 
Uh, revenue from low 90s four years ago to 554 million in cloud revenue. That's now 24% of overall revenues. We've taken annual recurring revenue on a cloud basis from low 100s to 800 million of ARR this this past year, growing at 83%. That's 34% of ARR. So a huge, huge motion to cloud. The, the on-prem business is very, very different. That's a much more turbulent business. When you're buying products for your data center, which is what we do, You've got to buy servers, you've got to buy storage, you have to buy network equipment, you have to hire people, you've got to have floor space and more real estate. And what happened in Q3 is well over 50% of our install base is still on-prem. And some of those high ticket dollar orders got extra scrutiny in the final days of the quarter. Um, it, it surprised everybody in the Splunk world. Looking back, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, that, that's a big commitment for companies who are now trying to think through, like Tesco, how much more do I invest on-prem? versus how quickly do I go to cloud? Uh, we corrected in Q4. We changed a lot of our sales methodology, our uh, overall guidance. We did sharing sessions across sales teams that experienced those unforeseen last-minute events. Um, and I think we had a much more rigorous discipline in Q4, and you saw that in the results. Uh, but you also saw cloud continue to benefit from what we're seeing with COVID uh, with the growth rates I just talked about. So, see, Doug, I, I haven't been with you all those quarters, but I've been with you for a lot of the quarters, and you're a straight-shooting guy. And it, it is a little uh, it's a little discouraging when you do the quarter and then you exceed the quarter and the stock still goes down. Now, your job is not to look at the stock. Your job is to do your do your work. But at a certain point, if you did look at it, I mean, I, honestly, I thought your stock would be up five percent today because you did it. And then some I guess sometimes you just got to put your nose to the grindstone and forget about the stock because that's where we are right now, isn't it? Absolutely. I think you said just a few weeks ago, famous quote that we I repeat every single day, short term markets weigh a uh, right. voting machine, long term it's weighing machine. What we are all about at Splunk is just making sure that we're doing the right thing that drives weighing. We've been going through a whole series of transformations, re-architecting our products, making them best in class in cloud. We've made massive investments in this observability arena, six acquisitions in less than two years. That business is growing over 100 percent. GigaOM, GigaOM, who's uh, the only analyst for this, come out with a uh, thorough evaluation of that landscape, just put us as the only outperformer coming from nowhere two years ago, the only outperformer in a critical space. So we are making long-term investments for the health of our customers. And over time, I know that's going to pay off. Uh, go and look at all your favorite names, those awesome, awesome right. cloud companies. Find another cloud company at $800 million that's growing at 83%. There's only one that I can find in the entire universe. Uh, that's at or above those rates. Um, and I'm, I'm just super proud of what our team has been doing. Well, you should be. And I, I also think you're a man of your word. A lot of people felt, uh-uh, when I saw it, you said, listen, it's going to happen next time. I knew it would, which is why I'm so glad you came on the show. Doug Murray, President and CEO of Splunk. Always good to see you. Thank you so much, Jim. Always good to be here. So now you got to put these names away. Maybe put them in your head. Maybe put them on a shopping list. But this is the kind of company that delivered. They're all going down. At a certain point, you're going to look at the ones that delivered and the ones that didn't. And you got to remember the ones that delivered. And Splunk did that. Doug Murray, President and CEO of Splunk. Bad Bunny's back in the Coming up, with the quiet period in the past, how should you play an IPO market that's about to get loud? Kramer's not whispering. He has a take you won't want to miss. Next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. What is the markets rolling over with the whole growth edifice collapsing under the weight of higher interest rates? We're about to get hit with the last thing we need, what we always seem to get at this juncture in a vicious decline. Let's call it a stock glut. I keep telling you that this period feels a lot like the inflation scare in late 2015 to early 2016, when the economy overheated, so tech got put through the meat grinder. And there's one more point of similarity. Back then, the high-flying cloud stocks got buried under a deluge of new IPOs of the same ilk. And you know what? We could see something very similar right now. Remember, as I always say, the stock market is above all a market, like any other bazaar of goods, meaning it's hostage supply and demand. When you've got lots of new supply coming online at the same time, IPOs, follow-on offerings, lock-up expirations, and the like, and not a lot of new money to stoke demand, it puts a ton of pressure on the averages. And that's exactly what's happening at the same time that yields are backing up, which would grind down stocks on their own. And look, right now, we've got lots of new supply coming online, lots of merchandise. It's not just the regular IPO market, which swung back into gear yesterday with a lackluster debut from this Oscar Health as a health insurance provider with a tech kicker. I mean, Oscar came public at 39, then opened down at 36 before finishing the session at 35. Then shed another 8% today. Six months ago, Wall Street would have been salivating over the same deal. But there's no appetite for it anymore because money managers only have eyes for the reopening place. They don't like growth. Well, this one should actually not have been brought. It kind of smacks the desperation. Next week, we've got some more big deals, like Coupang, the South Korean e-commerce giant. We've got a pair of direct listings coming up, too, where the companies just list their stocks without necessarily creating any new shares. There's Roblox, the online gaming platform, which is another one that feels like it missed its moment. But there's also Coinbase, the digital cryptocurrency exchange that's more in tune with the current zeitgeist. Holy Toledo. I mean, it's just way too much supply. Now, you can expect more SPAC deals, too, with sexy startups effectively coming public by merging with special purpose acquisition vehicles. But lately, these SPAC deals have been getting a lot less love. Have you noticed? It's something I warned you about. No one wanted me. I saw it on Twitter. People got attacking me. Well, you know what? Stop attacking me and apologize. It's another sign of oversupply. Worst of all, though, we need to brace ourselves for the aftermath of last year's IPO boom. See, it's now been six months since the IPO business caught fire last September, and six months is when the lockup on insider selling typically expires. Yeah, put it all together, and the stock market is about to have a serious oversupply problem with no concomitant buybacks or dividends to fall back on this moment. Really, it's three overlapping problems. So why don't we do this? Why don't we take each one of them? One by one, starting with new IPOs, because like at the top of the show, I want you to know all the reasons why we're getting pressured here, including both SPAC fundraisers and traditional IPOs. As of last night, we've had an astounding 277 deals year to date that have raised $95 billion. Over the same period in 2020, we just had 40 deals and it raised less than $14 billion. That's a lot of merchandise we got. Most of this year's IPOs have been SPAC deals, but it's a lot of money. Now, though, the IPO market is losing steam. There's usually a pause in the back half of February, but they opened the spigot for this Oscar Health, which came public with a thud. 
So now we've got the Coupang coming public next week. Number two, by the way, on CNBC's Disruptor 50 list, the Amazon of South Korea. Except they also have DoorDash-style food delivery business. Coupang wants to raise $3.6 billion, putting it in the neighborhood of last year's largest IPOs. And at the high end of the proposed price range, this would be a $50 billion company. Long term, I think it is a good story. But short term, I mean, I just look at it as another e-commerce play, more merchandise hitting the stock market that we don't have a place to put. The Roblox Street... Uh, Direct listing is another one that I'd normally be thrilled about in a different environment. It's supposed to be hot, hot, hot. Not sure if this is the moment for an online gaming IPO, though, even if the company is very popular. Right now, we're talking about this stock club. So what matters here is that Roblox just did a private fundraising round that valued the company $29.5 billion, And they're about to directly list 70% of their shares in the New York Stock Exchange next Wednesday. That's a lot of stock. I think too much. After that, well, there's one that's kind of interesting, Coinbase, direct listing coming later this month or maybe in April. Now, look, this could be a lot of excitement because it's about cryptocurrency, right? It's a cryptocurrency exchange. But again, let's talk supply. Coinbase shares have been bouncing between $200 and $373 in recent private market transactions. At the high end, that would give the company a $100 billion valuation. And it looks like the bulk of those shares will be available to trade immediately. Well, where are they going to put that stuff? And we don't know these app proportions yet, but is there really an appetite for all that? Second problem, the SPAC attack. Yes, people won't stop throwing money at the SPACs. Last month alone, there were 101 of these IPOs where you basically hand management a pile of money that they can use to make acquisitions. On Tuesday and Wednesday this week alone, there were 17 SPAC offerings that raised $5 billion. Well, this is ridiculous. It is. Lots of professionals who should know better have started treating SPAC deals as a sure thing. Get a piece of the IPO, then make a fortune when you're SPAC, buy something, and it stock spikes. But that playbook is not working that well now. It's incredible how fast this trade really did fall apart. So far this week, we've learned about seven SPAC mergers. These stocks all started around 10 bucks. The best performer from this group is only at 11 and change. The worst two are now under 10 bucks. I thought that wasn't supposed to happen. Not long ago, these deals would have probably cost, I don't know, 40, 50, maybe 80, 80, 100% spikes. Now the closest you can get is Vector Acquisition, which spiked 36% Monday on the news is buying a rocket company. But since then, it's given back most of these gains. The rocket companies, eh, no thanks. Or look at today. We found out that reInvent Technology Partners 5 is merging with Hippo. Oh, want some of that, right? An insurance startup. What happens if the stock plummets 6%? I mean, you know, now, look, there was a time when you say Hippo, that sounds good. Now it's like, sounds silly. All this stuff sounds silly. What's changed? I think there are too many of these SPAC stocks and too many individual investors who have been burned by the ones that have started to implode. Like this Churchill Capital Fort, which ran up to 64 bucks a couple weeks ago on rumors it would merge with Lucid Motor and electric vehicle play, and then got pummeled when we saw the terms of the deal, plunging to as low as $24 today. People can only start taking, you only take so many, so many hits like this. I mean, that's big money to lose. Plus, this market has lost interest in the kind of exciting startups that SPACs typically merge with. How many charging station stocks do we really need? Third and final source of oversupply, lock-up expiration Armageddon. In 2020, the IPO market raised $181 billion, and $100 billion of that was packed into the last four months of the year. Last September alone, there were 70 deals. Now, when a company goes public, there's usually some kind of lock-up on insider selling, so the executives and early investors can't tank the stock right after the IPO. The terms of these lockups often vary, but generally they last about six months, meaning a lot of new IPOs are about to get hit with a tsunami of insider selling. Once the lockup expires, your stock, well, it can be toast. I mean, look, there's Palantir's trying to hang in. Thank you to a particular fund that likes to buy it. It's big. But uh, JFrog, Unity Software, I mean, 
That's just supply speaking. And we've got a bunch of big ones on the way. Snowflake, the huge data warehousing company, has been way down since its multi-stage lockup expiration got rolling, even as the company reported amazing numbers last night. Didn't do actually fared pretty well in this awful market. Tomorrow we get the final lockup expiration, will nearly quadruple the size of the float. The company just reported that great quarter. Shareholders about to get swamped. Its market's unforgiving. I mean, maybe even it brings down a company that was able to go up $1.97 on a really hideous day. I'm also watching for good RX next week. Its flow could increase tenfold. Uh, Corsair Gaming, one of our favorites, March 22nd, its flow could triple. This, ladies and gentlemen, there's no room for this. Remember, these are just the beginning. There are more lockup expirations on the way, meaning more pressure for the stock market. I'm trying to get you to stop denying what's occurring. Again, we saw this in 2015, 2016, when we got hit with wave after wave of new stock from companies that had come public earlier in the year, bottom line. The market is in rough shape, and it makes sense that it's in rough shape, and it won't get easier if we're trying to digest a massive oversupply of stock, given that there doesn't seem to be much new money coming in. Between the new IPOs, the SPACs, and the wave of lockup expirations, this could get even uglier than it is. It could get 2016 ugly, especially for the high-growth tech stocks that are already rolling over. Remember, we saw the market go down, many of these stocks, 30 40%. The average stocks are down like 10% right now. Let's just hope the underwriters and even the companies themselves decide to pull their merchandise, realizing that this is a bad time to come public, and we need to stop the flood before it drowns us all. Much more made money ahead, including my exclusive with FireEye Cybersecurity. It remains a major threat in the digital economy. I'm hacking into the latest in the space with the company's CEO. Then I'm breaking down a trend in this market that investors need to watch out for. So don't miss my take on the dangers of it. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Even though the market's lost interest in some of our favorite growth stocks, doesn't mean that these themes just go away. Take cybersecurity. These stocks can't get any love right now because somehow they're widely regarded as COVID plays, and Wall Street's looking past the pandemic. But hackers are still out there, and with companies increasingly moving to the cloud, their networks are more vulnerable than ever when they make that transition. Just yesterday, we learned that some state-sponsored criminals in China compromised a bug in Microsoft's email and calendar server program. Frankly, you know what? I'm surprised that these big data breaches haven't gotten more attention. So tonight I want to consult an expert, FireEye, the cybersecurity company with the best forensics business in the whole industry. And they're the ones who call when you get hacked. Hey, by the way, let's cut to the chase. They're the ones who caught the huge solar winds breach back in December. FireEye stock jumped 70 percent in response, though since then pulled back from 24 to 18 and change. We know the group's out of style Wall Street fashion show, but this is the kind of stock that gets cheaper as it gets lower. So let's check in with Kevin Mandia, the CEO of FireEye. Get a better sense of how his company's doing and where the industry's headed. Mr. Mandia, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thank you for having me, Jim. Appreciate it. All right, Kevin, I was discussing with my friend David Faber this morning, and we said, how the heck mm-hmm. is it possible that this hack, this solar winds hack, which for all we know is still ongoing, mm-hmm. has just kind of dropped right. from view? Where there, there might have been hundreds of people who were hacking us, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. But when you look at the landscape right now, Jim, I've never seen anything like it. I started responding to breaches 25 years ago this week alone. We're still responding to the remnants of the SolarWinds breach. And by the way, that's an ongoing campaign. The group that hacked and put an implant in SolarWinds, they're not going away. They've been hacking us for 10 to 20 years. They're going to be doing it the next 10 to 20 years. But you referred to in your opening statement about four zero-day exploits, meaning exploits that have no patch, 
came out this week alone in Microsoft's Exchange server, the email server. That that went undetected for potentially a couple months. So there are a lot of major campaigns in cyberspace right now that are being very successful hacking American organizations. Well, Ken, there's something wrong here. I mean, we have great American companies. And some, you just right. mentioned Microsoft, uh, a fellow we've had on right. many times, George Kurtz, okay? Uh, he right. run, he's CrowdStrike CEO. He went actually in front of Congress. Yep. He said the threat actor took advantage of systemic weaknesses in the Windows mm-hmm. authentication architecture, allowing it to move laterally within the network. How do we even as a country allow that to happen? Well, I think, first off, building software is a lot more complex than people realize. I'm not going to throw a bone out there. The reality is most organizations that build software do their best to make it secure, but it's more complex than building a bridge. I remember somebody saying, we have laws and rules that govern how you build a building or build a bridge. We should have it for software. The problem, we know how people use bridges. We know how people use buildings. They follow the laws and rules of physics. Software, you have no idea how people intend to use it. And software works and integrates with other software to be really just usable. And because of that, you just introduce vulnerabilities. And there's another one point I'd tell you. We're just playing defense in cyberspace right now as a nation. We are giving offense the opportunity to hack us with no risks or repercussions, Jim. So when you're playing goalie, the puck's going to get in the net from time to time. Well, has anyone from the new administration called you about what happened with SolarWinds? Absolutely. We've talked to the government routinely. And what you can feel is we can tell the line of toleration has been surpassed. We have solar winds. We've got uh, an Excelion breach that was also uh, unfortunate. We have, uh, and by the way, it's not the fault of these companies. Everybody's doing their best, but with no risks or repercussions to the threat actors, we're kind of like a tackling dummy getting hit over and over again. This administration, I can tell we've crossed the line of tolerance we're going to make improvements to the federal government's security and to the nation's security. Well, we've known your company for a long time, so I know you're hands on. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Someone right. comes to you and says, listen, we've got mm-hmm. a real problem. And you start looking at it right. and you realize how huge it is and you blow the whistle. I mean, what happens? Give me give me the sequence what, of what happened. So uh, I, I can tell you, I was just getting a Friday afternoon security update from our security leader. And we had a small incident, somebody logging into our network successfully but it wasn't one of our people. They were using one of our accounts. The thing is, from 1996 to 1999, somewhere in that time frame, I think I responded to the exact intruder that we were dealing with, a foreign intelligence service from Russia. We recognized the TTPs, and even though there was a tiny wisp of smoke, we kind of went right from there to call a board meeting. Uh, This is the one we're worried about. And we are built to do investigations, Jim. That's what we do. So it's kind of like, a fireman responding to a fire in their own house. They know how to put it out. So we we just mobilized. We just said, it's time to go. Let's do forensics on every machine at FireEye. And when we were done, we still didn't know how they broke into FireEye. So what we did is we looked at the earliest evidence of compromise. It was our SolarWind server. Oh. We said, there's got to be something wrong with it. So oh. rip it apart, decompile it. And that's how we found it. We exhausted every investigative lead before he finally said, there's got to be something wrong with software you trust. So let's tear it apart and find the problem. Oh, so Kevin, look, you're from the military. Would you tell Biden right. if he, you were in the room? Just say, listen, we have a real problem. We don't even have a way to deal. You, use the tackle right. dummy. Say tackle dummy. What would you tell him that would make it yeah. so we wouldn't be tackle dummies? The first thing you have to do, 
publish a doctrine. These are the rules of engagement that we're going to abide by and you need to abide by. And if you violate them, expect proportional response. And I'd also tell the head of state, you have to know who did it. You have to get attribution right so you can impose risk and consequence. People won't mess with us if there's a penalty for doing it. Well, it's it's a little breathtaking, frankly, because Mm. it was just too easy. We're just too easily. uh, We don't fight back. It's wrong. Well, look, thank you for telling us the truth and for and for finding this thing out and for being vigilant, because that's what we need is vigilance. Kevin Mandiant, CEO of FireEye. Good to see you. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thank you. That's Kevin Mandy at FireEye. The stock's too cheap. I mean, it's not really, I mean, it's a little stunning. Don't want to think about the stock after what I just heard. But it is the company that found this thing. So it is worth a lot of money. Mad Money's back into the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It's a real estate investment trust, and right now with interest rates going higher, people do not want to own those stocks no matter what, no matter how good they are, so I cannot recommend it. Let's go to Joel in Illinois. Joel! Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah, Joel. All right. So 40 years ago, I got married, and Charles Walgreens was in the reception light at my wedding. And he said to me, don't ever sell our stock. I don't know if I want to own a drugstore anymore. I've got a reasonable position. <sighs> well, look, I mean, now he was before Amazon. And I went to CVS the other day, and there wasn't anything there other than the drugs I had to pick up that I wouldn't have been happier getting at Amazon delivered to my door. And that's the problem. The model has changed. So he was right until Amazon. Let's go to Noah in Maryland. Noah. That's ridiculous. I'm taking Noah's call. Noah. Jim, thank you for taking our call. Of course. Unfortunately, my father, who is a healthy 56-year-old and a big fan of yours, passed away in August due to COVID. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's definitely been rough. And he was a big fan of you, long-time watcher. Oh, thank uh, you. He, he was a long-time holder and a firm believer in the work that CVM, Celti Corporation, was doing. We're curious to know your opinion on whether to buy or sell. No, that's what, I mean, look, the immunotherapy, I actually would like it, what I call a feel bet for. The, the more immunotherapy, you know, four or five immunotherapies equal to one position, one of these is going to make all the money you need. And I've got to tell you, I think that's good, but I am very saddened about COVID and your 56-year-old dad. And I hope that the rest of your family is doing okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, in the market, it's all relative is a term that can cost you money. 
Kramer gives you the tools to navigate one of the most treacherous pitfalls in investing. Next. You are super. You are awesome. I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. Live by the pin action. Die by the pin action. And that's what we're seeing in tech right now, right here. When these former market darlings roared last year, it felt like they had no ceiling. Now that they're coming back to earth, it feels like they have no floor. There's a reason for that. Their valuations had become untethered from reality. Now, that's great when the market loves growth, but it's a bitter pill when growth goes out of style. And that is what's happened. It's out of style for now. Let me give you an example. Pinterest. Now, Pinterest is one of my favorite websites. It attracts hobbyists from all over the world. When advertisers were trying to figure out the best places to target consumers, well, Pinterest initially was kind of an also-ran, all right? The company's growing, not as fast as other social media plays. It's skewed international, which is a negative for most American consumer product companies. Going into last year, it felt like a has-been. But then Pinterest reported what I call a fulcrum quarter with much faster than expected growth. And suddenly this kinder, gentler social media site started poaching ad dollars from the uncontrollable Facebook. Next thing you know, the stock runs from 20 to $90. It goes from being kind of a small cap to a mid cap to a large cap, a $50 billion company. At these levels, Pinterest sold for more than 100 times earnings, and it felt like the sky was the limit. Well, because the estimates called for 50% growth. Well, so then you got to say to yourself, all right, that's not, it can't be isolated, right? It's got to be relative. There's got to be pin action. You see Pinterest soaring, that ignites the whole group. So Snap, another social media also ran, cleans up its act, then sees a big pickup in traffic, and suddenly the market needs to figure out what the new Snap is worth. Well, is it growing like Pinterest? you got to do the comparison. Nope, it turns out it's growing twice as fast as Pinterest. So at its peak, Snap gets a valuation that's roughly two times Pinterest. That's right, $100 billion. Well, then along comes Twitter, and it too sees growth accelerating. So we put it through the same prism as Pinterest and Snap, which is how its stock doubles over the course of six months. You get these moves when the only limit on valuation is what other people are willing to pay for a company's future earnings. But look what happens when the market sours on high-flying growth stocks because of an uptick in bond yields, with the benchmark 10-year Treasury going from 1% to 1.5% in this year. Well, you can't just circle the wagon and say, don't worry about it, right? I mean, that, that doesn't work. You, you can't say the businesses are fine. Well, this is the stock market we're talking about. With these former market darlings, there's nothing to buttress their valuations other than the future earnings streams. And those future earnings are worth less when everybody's worried about a pickup in inflation. You can't just say, hey, Pinterest is worth this. So you know what? This is worth much more than that. Uh-uh. Yeah, plus, these companies have no buybacks. If anything, they're probably issuing shares. They've got no dividends. Because they're growth stocks. And now suddenly the charts have turned against them, bringing in short sellers galore with no Reddit short busters in sight. In other words, with a Pinterest or a Snap, there's nothing to pin the valuation on. So what happens? We go all Humpty Dumpty until the bond market calms down. And that's where we are right now. The great growth stocks that roared last year making for a shaky edifice now because there's no there's no underpinnings. There's nothing to 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 make the valuation stick. 
I mean, even a great company like Snowflake just reported tremendous quarter last night. It should have been up huge, but it couldn't be. Why? It got very little love, in part because their, their last lockup on insider selling is about to expire, but also because, well, holy cow, if everything else is going down, how can that go up? Same goes for Zoom Video, the ultimate COVID stock that's trading like the pandemic's already over. And to be sure, while I like these companies both, I cannot be in denial, I cannot be oblivious to what's happening to their stocks separate from their companies. The bad news, all these high-flying growth stocks are worth less than it turns out we thought. Actually, I mean all of them. The good news, though, these stocks were able to flourish when long-term interest rates were low. So once bond yields start coming back down or even stabilize, well, there's a good chance they can come roaring back, hopefully with a little more caution, maybe with a little less irrational exuberance. That's why I'm always stressing that you need to stay disciplined because the market can turn on a dime. It's why I always tell you, listen, ain't nothing wrong with taking a little profit here because... Well, you had gains, and then you don't. It's why you need to remember, anything that soars like it's got no ceiling can also come tumbling down like it's got no floor. And it does so a lot faster than when it went up. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.